First John chapter four this evening. First John chapter four. We're going to look at the fourth verse. John writing to the church, writing to those that had become Christians under his ministry, specifically. He said, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Now, the them he's talking about are the evil spirits that are operating in the work, world, the work, doing the work of the devil. He identifies that in the previous few verses. So he says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because. Now, I want you to see the because. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want to talk about the greater one for a few weeks. So turn with me to John chapter 14. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this greater one. Jesus calls him, identifies him as the comforter. He's speaking, of course, as the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, Jesus on the last night that he spent with his disciples told them, verse 16, And I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now a couple of things I want you to see about this passage of scripture. Jesus identifies two aspects of the Holy Ghost. One he'll be in you and the other he'll be with you. Now why would he say that? I mean it stands to reason that if the Holy Ghost is in you he's with you. Right? Why did Jesus make a distinction between being with you and dwelling in you? There's got to be a reason. Jesus didn't just speak casually. He's talking about the Holy Ghost, which he knows they have no clue about. So you would expect him to take great care to be specific and to be clear in what he's saying. Notice also he said in the first part of verse, uh, verse 18, he's talking about the comforter. He calls him the spirit of truth. Another translation calls him the spirit of reality. Those, this word truth means reality. God will guide you into the truth of the reality of all things. So he says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Whom the world cannot receive. Now, Jesus is clearly talking about the unsaved. So he's talking about, he's identifying that there's a work of the Holy Ghost that's not for the unsaved. Now we know when we're born again, Ezekiel chapter 36 and other Old Testament scriptures tell us that the process... I'm not sure that's a good word to use, but I don't know what other word to, to substitute for it. But the process of being saved is that God takes the stony heart or the spiritually dead heart, spirit, from the inside of man and replaces it. He makes him a new spirit. That's what he said being born again is all about. It's becoming a new creature or a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and I'll put my spirit in you. Now, Jesus using... A sim, uh, an example or an illustration talked about how foolish it is to try to put new wine in old wineskins because they'll burst. Well, that's a, uh, an illustration that he's using about man being born again and having the life of God or the Spirit of God come in unto him. And he talks about it in a way that it identifies for us very clearly that man has to be renewed in spirit or born again before God can come and live on the inside of him. But that's not referred to as having the Holy Ghost. We know it's the work of the Spirit of God. Every work God does in the earth is through his Spirit. We know in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, it's talking about the new birth, and it says, we know the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Well, he's talking about uh, the salvation experience there. But the Bible identifies specifically 
two works of the Holy Spirit being in you and dwelling with you. So we want to talk about that. We want to examine some things about the Holy Spirit. Notice that he said the world cannot receive him because it doesn't know him. Well, what did God provide for the world? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible talks about the world having been given a gift, or let's say it this way, Jesus being given to the world as the gift for every man. But when he talks about the Holy Ghost, he doesn't talk about the unsaved. He talks about that being for the believer. Can you see that? See, Jesus is the gift given to the world. The Holy Spirit is the gift given to the believer. That's what he's trying to identify. That's what he's trying to get across. Now, let's see some things about this. Turn back with me to John chapter 4. Now, if we understand and work from the understanding that Jesus knows that there's two works to be done. He knows the disciples don't know it. He knows that nobody else on the the earth would have reason to know that. But he's understanding it very clearly. And as such, in John chapter 4, he talks about the first work when he's speaking to the woman at the well of Samaria. He's talking to her and he says in verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whatsoever or whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the new birth. He's got to be talking about the new birth because he's using water as a type of the spirit. And he says it springs up into everlasting life. Well, that's the new birth, isn't it? Everlasting life. Whosoever believeth on him, Jesus, shall have everlasting life. So Jesus is saying to the woman at the well of Samaria, there is a supernatural work, and it's a work of God, and it's it's an operation of the Holy Spirit. We know that by identifying other scriptures written to the church. There's a work of the Holy Spirit that takes place in and regarding eternal life. But now look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7 tells us about Jesus at the great feast. We'll start reading in verse 37. It says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now notice the similarity with John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well of Samaria, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Talking about the Jacob's well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him. Now what water did Jesus provide for the world? The Holy Spirit in salvation. So he talks about that experience of the new birth in John chapter 4 as being a well of water springing up into everlasting life. But notice here in verse 37, he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, he that believeth on me. Well, that would be a believer, wouldn't it? He didn't say anybody in the world. He identifies that it's somebody that already has a relationship with him. He that believeth on me, as the scripture is said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, but this spake he of the spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Notice the two works there. Those that already believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So notice Jesus is talking about the work of God in two different ways. 
using water as a type of both examples. The water of the new birth is like a well of water springing up into everlasting life. But who does the well benefit? The owner of the well. But then he talks about a second work of the Holy Spirit that belongs to those that believe on him. Again, that indicates some kind of connection or some kind of relationship prior to the experience that he's talking about. But he said that it would flow out of his innermost being as rivers of living water. Now, who does a river benefit? Everybody. There's no owner of a river. The river benefits everybody that's around. Now, let's look at this in in practice. And let me make some comments before we uh, before we go to the next scripture. There's a lot of misunderstanding in the body of Christ about the Holy Ghost. Paul wrote to Timothy and said that the word of God should be rightly divided. Well, if it can be rightly divided, then, it, then it's certainly possible to be wrongly divided. And there's a lot of things about the Holy Ghost and, and uh, uh, scriptures that the Bible tells us. God gives us to understand the Holy Ghost that have been wrongly divided, in my opinion. You've got a lot of misunderstanding in the body of Christ. You've got a lot of people that say that there's only one experience with the Holy Ghost once you're born again. You've got the Holy Ghost and that's all there is to it. You've got other parts of the church that say, no, there's two experiences. One is for the the individual, benefits the individual through salvation or eternal life. And the other is the working of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Ghost dwelling with you or upon you to do the works of Jesus in the earth. Well, what's right? We know that there's a lot of confusion in the body of Christ about the difference between 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it talks about the manifestations of the Spirit, or what are commonly called gifts of the Spirit, and Galatians chapter 5, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Consequently, you've got a lot of people, our denominational friends particularly, that say when you're born again, that's all of the Holy Ghost there is, and the list of the nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is proof that you've got the Holy Spirit. And that's certainly true. What's not true is the idea that once you are born again, once you receive the fruit of the Spirit or the work of the Holy Ghost that produces the fruit of the Spirit from within your own heart, your own spirit, that that's all that there is. And now that I want to prove to you. I want you to see these verses of Scripture. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 tells us the example or shows us the example of what happened with the apostles. Now, we'll pick up the story after Jesus is risen from the dead. He's identified himself and appeared to Mary Magdalene, and she went and told the disciples, and not all of them believed. So let's start in John chapter 20 and verse 19. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace unto you. Said unto them, Peace be unto you. Now notice where they are and notice why they are where they are. It says they're huddled up behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. The disciples are afraid. They're afraid that the same ones that crucified Jesus are going to find them, look for them, apprehend them, and maybe even put them to death just like they did, just like they did Jesus. They certainly have the authority to do so. So they're behind closed doors, hiding themselves for fear of the Jews. And Jesus shows up in their midst and says, peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. 
You remember his hands were where they drove the nails through to hang him on the cross. His side is where they pierced him with the, the spear where blood and water came out from his side, the scripture says. So he showed him his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now let's stop and think about what this means. Jesus, in John chapter 20, appears where the disciples are huddled up for fear because they're afraid of the Jews, the religious leaders, the high priests and such, the council. Jesus says, it's me, see that it's me, feel that it's me. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. Now these very same ones that are in this hiding place are the ones that Jesus is going to tell in just a few short days after in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So here's the question. Why did Jesus breathe on them in John chapter 20? For what purpose did he breathe on them and tell them, receive the Holy Ghost? If they didn't get something, then Jesus is a partner to a frog. If they didn't get something in John chapter 20, then Jesus has deceived them. If Jesus appeared to you and said, receive the Holy Ghost, if he breathed on you and said, receive the Holy Ghost, wouldn't you expect to get something? Under what circumstances would they not expect to receive something? I mean, they didn't ask for anything. Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. So he's initiating this. So something's got to be taking place. If he's being truthful, if he's not trying to deceive them, then something has to take place. Notice what he says in connection to the Holy Ghost that they're receiving at this point, at this moment in John chapter 20. He said, receive you the Holy Ghost. Verse 23, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this and, and think that the disciples or the apostles had some kind of special power to re- forgive or retain sins. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, because I'm alive, because I've conquered death in the grave. He's saying, because I paid the price for spiritual death, all of mankind can be born again. They can be create, recreated as a new creature, a new creation. They can enter into this eternal life. The remission of sins is given unto every man to proclaim the good news that the price has been paid. He's not saying that they're the deciders or they're the judges of whose sins are forgiven and whose sins aren't. If that were the case, then the apostles would have to live forever so that they could continue to judge here on the earth. Can you see that? No, the important thing, the point that we, that we need to take away from this is he's saying receive the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost that they received is connected with the remission of sins or the new birth. So Jesus is literally telling them, receive the Holy Ghost, be born again. Now, what proof do we have that that took place? Well, turn with me to, John, uh, to uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 is talking about this same period of time before Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost was poured out 
Notice it says in beginning in verse 50, and he led them out as far as to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and and were carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continuously in the temple praising and blessing God. Now something had to happen for these guys to change their behavior. Before they were hiding behind closed doors, they were afraid of the Jews. Now, after Jesus has breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they would be endued with power from on high. That is when the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost. But before the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost, these guys' lives have changed. They're filled with great joy. Joy is one of the hallmarks of the change that takes place in somebody when they receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and are born again when they receive eternal life. We'll see it a little bit later, but in Acts chapter 8, it talks about Philip going down to the city of Samaria and the people gave heed to the things that he said, both hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. They received the word of God and the city was filled with great joy. It's a function of the new birth. It's a part of the fruit of the spirit that's identified over in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and meekness. Against such there is no law. Now that list of nine, fruit of the spirit, is connected with the experience that the Bible identifies as the new birth. No question that it's the work of the Holy Ghost. When Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost, something happened, something changed their behavior, changed their character, changed the way they were operating. But Jesus didn't step into their bodies. He's there showing them his hands and his side. When he says, receive the Holy Ghost and breathed on them, what changed? What came in under them? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost in the new birth. The Holy Ghost connected with the remission of sins. Jesus is telling the disciples long before, well, what would it be, 37 days or so before the Holy Ghost is poured out and they receive power from on high on the day of Pentecost? These guys' lives have already changed. More than a month before the Holy Ghost is poured out. And so he's telling them that because he's risen from the dead, man has authority to deliver the good news, the gospel, the good news that the sins of mankind have been remitted. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. That's just a a King James way of saying whoever receives this eternal life, this gift of salvation, their sins are wiped away for good. But if somebody rejects it, their sins are retained. The disciples don't have the power to decide who's who when it comes to salvation. They have the authority and are given the authority by Jesus himself to deliver the good news that anybody can have it if they'll just receive it. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 1. Something happened to these guys. What happened was their lifestyle changed. But these are the same ones that in just a few days after, or maybe even at the same time, beginning in verse 6, Jesus is speaking to them. When they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, let me take a side journey here for just a moment. 
The Bible says that we are born again. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, I think it is, says that we are born again by the incorruptible seed of God's word. Now, is it the word of God that makes us new creatures? No, it's a work of the Holy Ghost. It's a work of the Holy Ghost that causes us to be born again, causes the nature of man to change from spiritual death to eternal life. And the Bible says that that it's the word of God that we're born by. In other words, it's telling us that without the word of God, we wouldn't even know why Jesus hung on the cross. And these guys prove that. They watched Jesus die on the cross, but they didn't know why. They watched the sin of mankind laid on him. The Bible identifies that his visage or his appearance was so changed that he didn't even look like a man. They watched all this happen on the cross. But they didn't know why. They didn't know what was happening. Jesus was made sin for mankind. He took sickness upon himself. Sickness was laid upon him as well. Maybe that had something to do with his appearance changing. I don't know. But the reality is, and the important issue is, they watched him die on the cross and had no clue what he was doing. So if we were just going by the, the apostles' experience, we wouldn't know what belongs to us. We wouldn't know what Jesus did. The only thing that causes us to know what Jesus did is the word of God that tells us what he did and why he did it. The good news is the preaching of the word of God that identifies what Jesus did, what he carried, what he bore as a substitute for mankind and what we can have as a result. Can you see that? That's why the word is so important. It's the word that tells us what's happened. It's the word that identifies for us who we are in Christ and why we are who we are. So they're asking him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They don't realize They've already been born again. John chapter 20 has already taken place. He's already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. But they don't even know what all is involved. So they asked him saying, Lord, are you at this time going to restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons, which the father has put into his own power. But here's what you should concern yourself with, guys. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, these are the same guys that he's just breathed on in John chapter 20 and said, receive the Holy Ghost. We see something's changed on the inside of them because they're not in fear anymore. They're filled with joy and they're continually in the temple worshiping and praising God. So there's something that's changed on the inside of them. And the evidence of what's changed is typical of the new birth for all of us. And these are the very ones that he says, wait in Jerusalem until the power of God comes on you. Until you be endued with power. When the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Notice that he says he comes upon you. Remember where we started in John chapter 14. He said the world cannot receive the Holy Ghost. Because it seeth him not neither knoweth him. But you know him. For he dwelleth in you. And he is with you. As we mentioned before. There's got to be a reason why he made the distinction between in and with. Now he's using a similar distinction. The same Holy Ghost that is in them by him breathing on them in John chapter 20 is going to come upon them or be with them. Can you see that? But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And that will cause you to be born again. No. 
and you'll be witnesses. He's talking about doing the work that he's assigned for them to do. He's not talking about being born again. He's talking about equipment for service. He's talking about a work or a power of the Holy Ghost that will come upon them so that they can do the work that he sent them out to do. He's talking about supernatural equipment. The power of God. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. We know very clearly then that this is after John chapter 20 when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost and they were born again. There's a lot of controversy in the body of Christ about when the church started. Most theologians, most people say that the church started on the day of Pentecost. That can't be right. The church was empowered on the day of Pentecost. But these guys have already been born again in John chapter 20. And here in Acts chapter 8, Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, the author of the book of Acts, is the same author that bears the gospel, uh, that bears his, of the gospel that bears his name, that told us about the change in them after he was ascended up into heaven. Now he's going to give us another account of the same time when Jesus was taken up into heaven. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they steadfastly looked toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing up into heaven? Now, i got to tell you, folks, that seems like a silly question to me. I guess the temptation was to keep looking, even after he was gone. I know, I'm, I'm sure, from the way human nature is and the way it operates, that a lot of people would have gone back to that same spot day after day after day and stood there all day looking up. And so I'm sure the, the angel is trying to get them to realize there's work to be done. So he said, why stand you here gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner. Thank God he's coming. Shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Well, we know what happens next. They gather themselves for the, until the day of Pentecost. They gather themselves day after day in the upper room. Waiting for what Jesus said to wait for. Wait, to be, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued from power on high. Now let me also make another comment about this. There are parts of the Pentecostal world. The church, part of the church, the segment of the church that believes in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. That think you have to wait. It's not as prevalent as it used to be. In the early days of Pentecost, being filled with the Holy Ghost was not as common or not as prevalent. We didn't have as much knowledge about it and how to and so forth as we do today. And so a lot of times people would get together and they'd say that they're waiting, that have tarrying meetings and waiting for the Holy Ghost. Well, folks, that doesn't make sense because if you've still got to wait for the Holy Ghost, don't you have to wait in Jerusalem? That's what Jesus told them. He said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. He's not telling them anything other than there's coming a time when the Holy Ghost will be poured out. Thank God that time has come and gone. So now you can receive the Holy Ghost without having to wait for anything. The only qualification for receiving the Holy Ghost is, number one, you've got to be born again. You've got to be a believer. And secondly, you have to believe that you receive him by faith, just like you did salvation. Now, the Bible tells us, 
And I want to go through this. And you may be already familiar with these things. Not everybody is. But even if you are, it's important for you to be reminded and go over some of the same ground. Because if you do know these things I'm going to teach you, you need to realize that not everybody else does. I think a lot of times we take for granted what we know. And we don't realize that other people don't know as much as we do about the word. So we want to talk about this for a minute. We see that there's two experiences and we'll, it'll be confirmed through some of the scripture we look at from this point forward. We see that there's two experiences that involve God and the working of the Holy Ghost. The first is the new birth. We're born again by the Spirit of God through the Word of God because it's the Word that tells us what happened, what Jesus did for us and why. But then there's a second work of the Holy Ghost called the baptism of the Holy Ghost and that's what Jesus is telling the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for. So in Acts chapter 2, Beginning in verse 1, it tells us that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as it were a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here's the question. The Holy Ghost inspired this, uh, this account to be written, right? Why did he tell us what he did about the experience? There's one thing that the Bible identifies in major zone relative to, to the baptism or the infilling or the outpouring, whichever term you want to use. They all mean the same thing of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. And that was they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak. Notice they began to speak. The the subject of the sentence is them, the disciples. They were all filled with the Spirit and they began to speak. It's not the Holy Ghost doing the speaking. It's the Holy Ghost that's giving the utterance. See, some people get hung up and fail to receive the Holy Ghost. This is what I did. Before I knew any better. I prayed and asked God to fill me with the Holy Ghost. And then just stood there with my mouth open. Not making any sounds. Not doing anything. Waiting for the Holy Ghost to speak through me. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. It doesn't say the Holy Ghost does the talking. You're the one that does the talking. He gives the utterance and you speak it out. It's it's the use of your tongue, your lips and your voice. That takes place. So they began to. They were filled. And they began to speak with other tongues. As the spirit gave them utterance. Now again part of the church world. The denominational part of the church world. Maybe others as well. But we'll identify them. In those terms. The denominational part of the church world says. That the infilling of the spirit. Is not for everybody. But notice none of these people were left out. They were all filled with the spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there are many times that people will make excuses. And the excuses always have to do something with tongues. Tongues is the issue when it comes to being filled and baptized with the Holy Ghost. And that's not the way it should be. Jesus did not say, but you shall receive tongues after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He said you receive power. So power should be the issue, but it's not. 
the arguments and the disagreements that take place in the church world between different parts or segments of the modern day church are not over power. They're over tongues. And the denominational part of the church world says, well, we've got the Holy Ghost in us. So we've got all that there is. So we'd have the power of God too. We just don't speak in tongues. But the Holy Ghost gave us an example of what being filled with the Holy Ghost looks like. They were all filled with the Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues. They began to speak with other tongues. Isn't it interesting how the devil has turned the controversy of the baptism of the Holy Ghost or the filling of the Holy Ghost into uh, an argument about tongues? Because that's always the issue. You ask any believer, anybody that loves Jesus, sincerely loves Jesus, particularly those that are walking in fellowship with God, if you ask them, do you want to have all the power that God has available to you? Well, who's going to say no to that? But if you tell them, Or present it in such a way where it's attached to tongues. Do you want to receive the power of God available to you through the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues? And then you've got a disagreement. Then it becomes a conflict. So the argument's never about power. It always comes down to tongues. Now there are five times in the New Testament, the book of Acts, five times that the Bible tells us where someone or a group of people we're filled with the Holy Ghost. Here's the first one. There's 120 of them in the upper room and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's no way to argue with the experience that's identified in Acts chapter 2. The experience that Jesus said that would provide power for them to be witnesses, servants of God, to do the work of helping others and getting the good news of Jesus out to the world came as a result of them being filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking with other tongues. You know the result? On that same day, they wound up being out in the street. People heard them speaking in tongues. They heard them speaking in languages that they understood on, uh, in the case of some people. Others didn't understand the languages, and so they thought, well, these people are just drunk. Now, folks, before I started walking with God during some of the time that I was in college, I spent some time, too much time, in bars. I spent too much time on too many occasions being around people that were drunk. And I never saw anybody speaking in tongues in a bar. Never. There was never a time when I saw somebody acting weird or drunk or whatever the case was and thought that might be the Holy Ghost. So these guys must be coming up with some excuse. The ones that said these people are just drunk. They're just coming up with some excuse to explain away what's going on because they've never seen anything like that. The world has never seen anything like that. This is the first time anybody had ever spoken in tongues in the history of mankind. Peter winds up preaching to them, tells them about Jesus, and 3,000 people, I think it was, is it three or five? 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost got born again. And gave themselves over to water baptism. In other words, when the Holy Ghost was poured out upon them, they became witnesses in Jerusalem and got 3,000 people saved the first day. That's not a bad first day. Would you agree? 
Now let's look at another example of when somebody was filled with the Holy Ghost. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is 10 years later. We read the Bible through and sometimes we think that it happened within a space of a few days or a few weeks. But in many cases, this being one of them, a lot of time has passed. So in Acts chapter 10, you remember the story. We won't take time to read the whole thing, but the Bible tells us that Cornelius, who was a Gentile, has an angel appear to him. He's worshiping God, and an angel appears and tells him to send to a certain place for a disciple named Peter who will tell you words whereby you and your household can get saved. They need to hear the word preached because that's the the means whereby salvation comes. People are saved through the preaching of the gospel. And so that's what Peter does. Peter has seen a vision, falls into a trance while he's waiting for lunch. He sees a, a, a giant sheet let down with all kinds of clean and unclean animals in it. And he hears the, vo- the word of Jesus, the voice of Jesus saying, rise, Peter, slay and eat. And he resists. He says, not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And Jesus says to him, this happens three times. Jesus says to him, don't call common or unclean that which I've cleansed. Now, he doesn't realize it at the time. It takes him till the next day when he arrives at Cornelius's house to realize that Jesus is telling him that his blood has cleansed the Gentiles just like it's cleansed the Jews. The salvation is available to the Gentiles through the hearing and receiving of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus, the good news that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead for our justification. That's available for the Jews as well as uh, for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Now, think about this. The church has been going on for 10 years in the city of Jerusalem. And they haven't figured that out yet. It's primarily, predominantly, the greatest percentage of the church are Jews. Very few Gentile proselytes. Well, Peter goes down to Cornelius' house. He knows he's going to get in trouble, so he takes certain other of uh, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, certain of the church leaders in Jerusalem, down with him. And he begins to preach. We won't go through this whole preaching, his whole message. Let's start. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. It said, while Peter yet spake these words, he's preaching salvation. He's preaching about what Jesus did for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Now notice that phrase. The Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. The Holy Ghost fell. Now we saw on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Ghost was poured out from heaven. Is that the same thing as falling? Must be. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision, these are the ones that came down with Peter from Jerusalem, and they of the circumcision which believed, that means they were believers, Christians already, were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out. Here's another phrase, fell or poured out. Because on the Gentiles was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, how'd they know? Notice in verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So apparently, while Peter is preaching to Cornelius in his household, These people get a double dose all at one time. You can understand that they'd be primed and ready to hear what Peter had to say because of what the angel told them that Peter would say. Send to Joppa for one named Peter. 
Simon Peter, for he shall tell thee words whereby thou and thy house shall be saved. They're expecting to be, to be saved. They're expecting to receive whatever is necessary. They may or may not know, probably didn't know the process or what they needed to hear or what they needed to do to be right with God, to be born again. They may not have even known that born again was an experience that you could have. But they're expecting Peter to tell them something that will change their lives. And so they receive salvation. They believe and accept in what uh, Peter said about Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection. But something else happens too. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard the word. And they of the circumcision which came down with Peter were astonished, as many as believed. They were astonished that the gift of the Holy Ghost was poured out upon them. How did they know? Now, folks, here's something that you need to realize. The early days of the church, 10 years after the day of Pentecost, here's what the church thought, knew, and or understood about the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They knew the gift of the Holy Ghost was given to Cornelius and his household because they heard them speak with tongues. Tongues was the evidence. Tongues was the proof that God had given the Holy Ghost to these Gentiles. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. They heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now here's the second experience. Second of five. That the book of Acts gives us about what happened when people were filled with the Holy Ghost. And it's exactly the same one as it happened ten years before. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. They were filled with the Spirit and spake with other tongues as the Holy Ghost gave them utterance. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is 20 years. After the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 19. We'll start reading in verse 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples. He said unto them have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed. Now notice Paul's question. He believes that they're saved. They're acting as believers. Their attitude toward God is such that he thought they were saved. He was wrong. He finds that out in a few minutes. But they're acting in such a way toward God. Their manner of life and their attitude toward God is such that he thought they were saved. He thought they were born again. And he asked this. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Well, we know that since you believed means since you were born again. Has to. Jesus said, whosoever believeth on me shall be saved. So he expects, he being Paul, expects that they are already believers and then he asks have you had another experience with the holy ghost and notice what he calls it have you received the holy ghost since you believed now you and i know from what the bible tells us and what paul even identifies to his writings to the church if they are believers if they have been born again if they're christians then the work of the holy ghost has taken place on their spirits to renew them to god they've been born again they've become new creatures or new creation Men and women in Christ Jesus. And Paul expecting that that's already happened. Thinking that's already taken place in them. Says have you gotten the experience. That we're calling receiving the Holy Ghost. This is proof positive. That Paul understood. The modern day church may not. But Paul understood that there's two works of the Holy Ghost. One is in salvation. And one is in the infilling or the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now that's what Paul knew. Now, the modern-day church may be too smart to fall for that. 
But that's what Paul knew. That's what the early church understood. And so they answered and said, we've never even heard there is a Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, under what then were you baptized? In other words, his, uh, his attitude toward this was something along the lines of, well, the people that brought you into the family of God, the ones that helped you get born again, they didn't tell you about the Holy Ghost. But then they answered and they said, we've been baptized under John's baptism. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, the Bible says. John went about everywhere, baptizing people, saying, repent and look for the one that's coming after me. Well, this message has gotten as far as Ephesus. And people were baptized in water under repentance, looking for what John said was coming. And that's Jesus, who he was the forerunner of. But now Jesus has come. He's lived and he's died, been raised from the dead. For 20 years. And they didn't hear anything about that. So Paul. Then backs up. Now he knows where he stands with these people. He knows what condition they are spiritually. Then Paul said. John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. Saying unto the people that they should believe on him. Which should come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words. They got born again. They received Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They become new creatures in Christ Jesus. This is the condition now after Paul has preached to them and told them about Jesus and his work on the cross. This is the condition that, that Paul mistakenly assumed that they were in already. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul knows there is a Holy Ghost. He knows about the work of the Holy Ghost. So Paul lays his hands on them. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, came on them came on them notice it doesn't say came in them it came on them this is the second experience that he calls receiving the holy ghost this is the same thing jesus talked about when he said even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive for they neither know him but you know him well how do we know him because he'll be in us in the new birth and dwell with us through the baptism of the spirit Or the infilling of the spirit. Whichever term you want to use. And when Paul laid his hands on them. The Holy Ghost came on them. How do we know? And they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. Don't know how big a group it was. But if it's like anything there is today. The women outnumber the men. Usually two or three to one. So this could have been a crowd of 50 people. All we know is it was 12 men. And whoever else was there. And the Bible is indicating to us that nobody was left out. And all it took was knowledge of what belonged to them and everybody entered in. Nobody had to wait. Nobody had to tarry. They're in Ephesus, not Jerusalem. So nobody's waiting for anything. Nobody's having to sit by and talk God into the notion of doing something for them. Now, if Paul is an example of the early church... If Peter is an example of the early church, then Acts chapter 10 shows us, along with Acts chapter 19, the process whereby God changes people's lives through the new birth and then empowers them through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, that's the third experience, the third of five experiences 
that the, the Bible gives us in the book of Acts. Turn with me to, uh, well, let's start with Acts chapter 9. We'll talk about Paul's as the fourth one. Acts chapter 9. Tells us about Paul's journey to the, on the road to Damascus, how he meets Jesus. The glory of the light that shined round about him caused him to be blind for three days. He gets born again. He gives his life to Jesus on the road to Damascus when Jesus identifies himself. Paul asks, Who art thou, Lord? Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. In other words, he's saying, You're wasting your time persecuting me. You're really wasting your time. Now, I think that's a good attitude for us to have when we come under persecution. The devil's wasting his time persecuting the church. Doesn't mean he won't. Doesn't mean it's not uncomfortable. Doesn't make it pleasant. But the end result is the devil is really wasting his time. If Jesus told us the truth. So he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And Paul answered and said, what would you have me do, Lord? He calls Jesus his Lord and Savior. He knows that Jesus is raised from the dead because he's talking to him in a supernatural way. So he sends him into the city, tells him he'll tell him there what to do. And then it tells us that there was a certain disciple named Ananias whom the Lord appears to and tells him to go lay hands on Paul that he might receive his sight. Ananias, we'll pick up the story in verse 17. Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting hands on him, his hands on him, said, Brother Saul. Here's another proof that Saul was already saved. He got saved on the road to Damascus. Ananias didn't have to tell him about Jesus, didn't have to tell him that Jesus was our substitute on the cross and that he was raised from the dead. Paul knows the message. He's been persecuting the message. He finds out on the road to Damascus that the message is true. Now, Ananias certainly wouldn't come into Saul and call him brother if he wasn't already saved, would he? In fact, the Lord had to talk Ananias into going to where Saul was in the previous verses because Ananias said, I've heard about this guy. He's persecuted the church in Jerusalem, and now he's here with letters from the council, the Jewish council, to do the same thing in our town. And the Lord answers and responds and says, go your way. He's a chosen vessel unto me. And so he shows up. And again, in verse 17, he says, Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me. So apparently Jesus has told him what happened a few days before. He wouldn't have any other way to know that. The Lord that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and rose and was baptized. Well, look at this case. Here's the fourth of five, and it doesn't say a word about Paul speaking in other tongues. But 1 Corinthians 14, verse 18 does. Paul said, writing to the church at Corinth, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. But when did he start? We know he speaks with tongues by the time he's writing letters to the church. So when did he begin speaking with other tongues? How could we assume anything other than what the Bible has given us examples of in three other places that we've already looked at where people were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues? How would we assume or why would we assume that Paul's experience 
where Ananias came for the purpose of laying his hands on him to receive his sight and to be filled with the Holy Ghost, how would we assume and what authority would we use to assume anything other than when Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost, he began to speak with other tongues just like the rest of the church did? We'd have, to be, we'd have to add something to the scripture or take away something from the scripture to come up with any other conclusion. Because he says personally in his letter to the Corinthians, I'm, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than all of you. He began sometime. I believe that we can conclude if the Bible is giving us a clear picture of what the baptism of the Holy Ghost is all about, I believe we can conclude that he began when Ananias laid his hands on him. Now, here's the fifth one. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We'll start earlier in the chapter and pick up a few verses. Uh, Verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. This is eight years after the day of Pentecost. Before the the Gentiles received the Holy Ghost in Cornelius' household. Long before Acts chapter 19 takes place in Ephesus. But this is eight years after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things that Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Notice he's preaching Christ and he has miracles following. Here's the only New Testament example we've got of the evangelist. The only one. The people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits were crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and were lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Well, let's just keep reading. I wasn't intending to read the whole thing, but I think I will. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria giving out that himself was some great one. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Well, he's not, but he's tricked them into thinking so. He's a con man. And to him they had regard because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, folks, I need to ask you a question. This is very important that we understand what's going on. Are the people of the city saved at this point in time? But when they believe Philip, preaching the gospel of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. Jesus said, whosoever believeth on me and is baptized shall be saved. So if Jesus told us the truth, these people are born again through the ministry of Philip. And that's what he came down to preach to them. That's why he came to Samaria and preached Christ for the purpose of getting them saved. And he did. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in the city, but everybody that believed. It's indicating that it was a large population or a large percentage, perhaps. Verse 13, but then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now the apostles, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Notice how the Bible says that. When they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Again, Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, I believe it is, said that we're born again by the incorruptible seed of the word. 
That's another way of saying exactly what this is saying in Acts chapter 8. They received the word. They believed the preaching of Jesus. They were born again and they gave themselves to water baptism. But that's not the only work that can be done here. So when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them, the people of the city, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Now, if they'd been born again already by receiving the preaching of Jesus, believing the preaching of Jesus that Philip has done, and uh, proven by signs and wonders and so forth, as it refers to, if they're already born again, We know that there's a work of the Holy Ghost that's changed them on the inside, that's made them new creatures in Christ Jesus. We know that work of the Holy Ghost has deposited in them by the Spirit of God, by the life of God itself. What's known in Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. We know now that they have been born unto love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and meekness and temperance. We know that those nine fruit of the Spirit may be in an infancy stage, certainly in Simon's case in an infancy stage. There's at least been the seed that's been deposited in them because of their belief in Jesus and their acceptance of the new birth. So what do the disciples do? What do the apostles do in Jerusalem? They hear that Samaria has gotten, people in Samaria have been born again. So they sent down Peter and John to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Here's that second experience. They have already, they being the people of Samaria, have already received the experience that the disciples did in John chapter 20, when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. They've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. But now they want, they that the apostles, Peter and John particularly, want the people of Samaria to be able to experience what they experienced on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's their purpose for coming down to Samaria. Can you see that? Let me stop here long enough. We'll pick up the story in just a second. Let me stop here long enough to ask a question. When did that process change? Clearly the early days of the church. The examples the Bible gives us shows us two experiences. One being the new birth or salvation, the salvation experience. The second being receiving the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. When did that change? Some people say, well, the Bible tells us over in 1 Corinthians Chapter 14, the tongues will cease. And some believe that the the tongues ceased at the time that the apostles died, the last apostle died. But if you read that passage of Scripture, we'll go through it some other time. We won't take time to turn to it right now. But if you read through that passage of Scripture, you'll find that the same time that tongues will cease, something else ceases. Knowledge. Knowledge will cease. What event or at what point in time will cause knowledge to cease i'm convinced that it's already ceased for a lot of people in the church world by their ignorance of the scripture but what paul is telling us by the holy ghost that there'll be a point in time when we won't need to speak in tongues there'll come a point in time where the knowledge that we have now and that we operate in now will be of no use well when will that occur when we get to heaven see you won't need to talk in tongues when you get into heaven There'll be no, no reason, no purpose whatsoever to speak with other tongues when we're in heaven. And the Bible says that when we get to heaven, our eyes will be opened and we will know as we are known. Which is certainly a greater degree of knowledge or a greater operation of knowledge than what we have here. 
Paul said we know in part and we prophesy in part while we're here on the earth. But there's a time coming where we'll be able to see him face to face. When is that? After Jesus comes. So you can't use the scripture where, John, where Paul talks about knowledge or, or uh, tongue ceasing. Unless you realize that that's talking about in heaven. Okay, back to Acts chapter 8. Beginning in verse 15 again. Who, when they were come down, Peter and John is talking about, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Here's that word fallen again. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's telling us for, of a certainty. They were baptized or they were saved by the preaching of the, of the good news of Jesus, his work on the cross and his resurrection. But the Holy Ghost hasn't fallen on anybody. The Holy Ghost certainly did a work in them when they were born again. But that's not what's called receiving the Holy Ghost. That's what's called being born again. So they come down with a specific purpose. And that is to minister the baptism of the Holy Ghost to the city of Samaria. Then laid they their hands on them. And they received the Holy Ghost. Now the Bible doesn't say one word about speaking with tongues. But let's keep reading. I want you to see something about this story. And when Simon, remember he's the con man, he saved it too, but he still used to be in a con man. He's still trying to work an angle. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Stop right there long enough to let me, for me to ask you a question. What did he see? Simon saw something and he offered him money for it. Now what he's offering money... Maybe I stopped a little bit too soon. Let me read another scripture. Simon said, give me also this power, verse 19. Give me also this power to minister the baptism of the Holy Ghost, in other words, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost too. But Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. We're back to the same question. What did he see? He saw something. He saw something that was worth money to him. Now you know as well as I do that if there was no evidence, if there was no proof that people received the Holy Ghost, this is perfect territory for him to continue his con just in a different way. He's not going to offer money for nothing. He's not going to offer money for something that can't be identified as the real deal. But he offers money trying to buy the, the, the power to minister the Holy Ghost to people so that the results can be seen in them from his hands, just like it was from Peter's and John's. But notice what Peter says. He's already said in verse 20, Peter said in him, thy money perish with thee because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Notice verse 21. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. Notice the word matter. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter for thy heart is not, in the, not right in the sight of God. The word matter, look it up for yourself, is the Greek word logos, which is translated word. It's used 316 times in the New Testament. It's used in a lot of different ways, a variety of ways. It's used specifically talking about speech. It's translated utterance, speech, saying, words, and so forth. By definition, 
The word logos means words that are spoken. It's the same thing that, that uh, John uses in John chapter 1. Where he says in the beginning was the word logos. And the word was with God and the word was God. But Paul uses it in several of his writings as well. Several of his letters to the church. In Colossians chapter 4. He prays or he asks the church to pray for him. That God would open a door of utterance for him to minister. He goes on a few verses later in chapter 4 of Colossians. And says let your speech. Same word logos. Let your speech be seasoned with grace. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 19. Paul asked that the church would pray for him. That God would give him utterance. Logos. Utterance to speak as he ought to speak. The root word for logos is the same root word that is used in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 where it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what is this matter that Paul is talking, that uh, Peter is talking about in Acts chapter 8? You have neither part nor lot in this matter. What matter is he talking about? What event? What instance? What's a, what occurrence is he talking about? He's talking about a spoken word. Speech. It would be absolutely correct to translate this. Thou hast neither part nor lotter, nor part nor matter. I'll get it right in a minute. Now he has neither part nor lot in this matter of speech. So what did he see? The word identifies it as spoken words. The scripture identifies it. King James translation doesn't. But the original Greek identifies what's going on and what Simon had to see as being the same thing that the other examples, the other four examples tell us about as a result of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And that is speaking with other tongues. So you've got five examples in the New Testament. And each of the five identify either directly or indirectly that the initial evidence of being filled with the Holy Ghost is speaking in other tongues. Now let's go back. I know time's up. We'll need to quit here. But let's go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples. But you shall receive power. The issue is power. The issue is power. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Remember where we started in John, 1 John 4, 4. You, are, you have overcome them. You are of God and have overcome the evil spirits in the world. Because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That's talking about power. Isn't that a reference to power? Would have to be. So the issue is power. The power was promised by Jesus himself after the Holy Ghost would come upon them. And the evidence that the Holy Ghost came upon the church then and now. Is they spoke with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. Tongues is the doorway to the power of God. It's the doorway. To the power of God in your life. It's the doorway to the power of God in whatever work he has for you to do. It's the gateway, the door to the power of God. We won't get into it in detail. We will at a later time. I mean, we won't get into detail right now. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul speaks of those that talk in other tongues He said, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. To edify means to charge yourself up with power. 
like you charge a battery. Everybody knows about charging your smartphones and your iPads and all that kind of stuff. Our lives hinge around charging ports. And if we forget to charge our, recharge our batteries, what in the world do we do when the battery runs out? Our lives are put on hold until we can reconnect. Well, speaking with other, other tongues is reconnecting your spirit to God in just exactly the same way. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself, builds himself up spiritually. The key to spiritual power, the key to being ready to answer somebody or help somebody when the, the need arises is to be charged up spiritually through speaking with other tongues. That's why it's such an important issue for the body of Christ. It was such an important issue that Jesus died for him to come. Jesus said, I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. That he may abide with you forever. If tongues had been passed away or did pass away when the last apostle died, like some of the church claims, then Jesus lied. The Holy Ghost didn't come to stay. He just came to visit. But Jesus said, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll abide with you forever. What a privilege it is to speak with other tongues. What a privilege it is to recharge ourselves, recharge our spirits with power to do anything and everything that God wants us to do. Don't take it for granted. Some people get filled with the Holy Ghost and they think, and that's kind of the end of it. They speak with other tongues when the experience takes place, but then they don't use it. Jesus thought it's so important to magnify the Holy Ghost and to tell his disciples that because of the Holy Ghost and the power that he would bring into our lives, it would be better for us that he did go away. For if he didn't go away, the Holy Ghost couldn't come. Jesus said it's better for you to have this source of power than for me to stay here on the earth where you could enjoy being around me. Must be pretty important. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Ghost. We delight ourselves in you and the truth of your word. We realize that a great work of the enemy is to minimize the operation of the Holy Ghost in our lives. But Father, you said that the greater one is in us and your word teaches us that we access that spiritual power through speaking and praying in other tongues. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name for the privilege to speak to you in other tongues, the privilege to recharge ourselves spiritually, the privilege of having the Holy Ghost in us and upon us. Lord, don't let us take that for granted anymore. Let us use that gift in such a way that it empowers us for a greater work, greater deeds, greater service than we've ever known before. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's all stand together. Before we go, let's spend a few minutes praying in tongues. Is that all right with you? We're a group of people where everybody knows pretty well what we're doing and why. So we don't need to worry about an interpretation or any kind of explanation in this type of setting. Now, if you're here and you don't know 
you're not filled with the Holy Ghost and you want to receive him, then just come talk to me after the service. We'll lay hands on you and God will change that for you right quick. But while we're here as believers, let's just lift our hands and begin to speak with other tongues for a few minutes. Just edify ourselves. We're not praying about anything. We're just edifying ourselves. Can we do that? Let's do.